Taylor. And we're, we're the, the Barclays. Barclays. This is our podcast about Christianity, culture, politics, and our opinions on all of the above. This week, we are talking about a subject near and dear to our hearts um, that relates to uh, today in our lives. So June 11th, 2019 uh, was a very difficult day. It was three weeks exactly after I gave birth to our son, our only son, and I woke up with a paralyzed leg. I just... Mm -hmm. um, I had been kind of deteriorating for a couple of weeks, having a hard time walking, and I had tingly fingers after I gave birth, and this was after years of back pain, and one morning, yeah, I just woke up, and no toe would wiggle, my whole right leg couldn't lift it, nothing. Uh, it, was it was very- just lying there. Just lying there, very scary experience. I kind of didn't know what to do. I asked Taylor to bring Hudson to me to feed him, and just- I uh, went into full panic mode and kind of broke down. Uh, we had been to see a doctor the day before, and he mm -hmm. said, if, quote, if things get worse, go to the ER. So we talked about, well, this seems worse. Because you were walk, you were, I mean, barely walking the day before. Right. The night before. And yeah, we remember <laughs> we were looking at each other like, oh, this, this is worse. Obviously, we should go to the ER. I think you called your OB. Right. They said, yeah, go to the emergency room. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is going to be the start of something. Yeah, I, I, I don't even remember a, a thought. I just felt panic. <laughs> yeah, and we had to carry you down the stairs, basically. Yeah, I couldn't get down the stairs. But it began, uh, how long? I guess June, to, June 11th to September 25th, where you were in hospitals. Mm -hmm. I never returned home yeah. after that date until the yeah. fall. We call it kind of our lost summer yeah that's true and then returning home in a wheelchair mm -hmm. where you couldn't move much right i still had kind of limited mobility from my chest down i'd regained a lot of my arm and hand mm -hmm. function so um the surgery that i had to remove the tumor that caused the paralysis um, left me a quadriplegic. So I had limited function from the neck down, basically, um, when I woke up from surgery on June 19th, 2020. Mm -hmm. And then slowly more and more came back. And um, today yeah. marks the two-year anniversary of the start of that journey. So yep. we thought, since this is our podcast, <laughs> we, would, we would reflect a little bit on what, uh, what we've learned about disability yeah. uh, through our own personal experience and disabled my, community. Yeah. Yeah. And might, might I add that there are one in four people in the U S are disabled. So um, it counts as like what kind of conditions so, or injuries um, it's status pretty broad. So okay. it could be mobility. That's the highest amount. So trouble walking or getting upstairs. Mm. It's like 10% of it. And then, there is intellectual or cognitive disabilities mm -hmm. um, and kind of uh, other kind of lighter disabilities down the scale. So there, there are many different types, many seen and unseen, right? Um, True. You know, blind and deaf are, com are included in the disability community. Um, but that's a pretty high number of people. So one in four people, probably everyone knows someone with a disability of some sort. Mm-hmm. 
kind of we we talk about the well so i guess for me learning a lot through this process you know we were both very able-bodied lots of active things i don't think i was a kid knew one family friend who was in a wheelchair mm-hmm. and just felt kind of foreign mm-hmm. you know wheel and it just i guess it's kind of relates to the point i was going to say it's like disabled community is sort of hidden away in mm. media depictions uh socioeconomic classes i think have there's a preponderance in like lower income communities right i think so yes um, because it it can be cost prohibitive it can be very hard to get a job we can talk about all the, all those things as well right so there's some um correlation of being disabled and being in poverty right so i guess for me through you know your hospitalizations spending time at mcgee rehabilitation hospital which is a whole center for spinal cord and brain injury treatment so everyone there (laughs) was in a wheelchair of some sort or even confined to their bed Mm -hmm. i was always struck by just the variety of people in the physical therapy room remember one patient in particular physical therapy for this person was her hospital bed being wheeled in there and they were doing wrist exercises with one hand hmm. and others. I remember at the time, like <laughs> looking at them walking with the, the ceiling harness device and just like, Oh, Rachel can get there someday. <laughs> I think for you, it were different stages, but just getting for me, it, I, I think I grew a lot in, um, I mean, it's, I don't know what other, what, what other way to put it, but like there are people too. <laughs> right. I just was so unfamiliar with, that population knowing hardly anyone Mm -hmm. couple friends with i'd say cognitive disabilities but Mm -hmm. physical disabilities wheelchair life certainly was completely foreign to me and um i think all the staff did a great job of training me and Hmm. um maybe you too i don't know what Mm -hmm. you'd say but for you know how to operate with a wheelchair and be conscious conscientious of others in wheelchairs or using mobility devices mm-hmm. um yeah so it was it was i think i've grown a lot and now it's kind of like you know we see someone on a wheelchair in the wild and it's like ah, oh, one of us <laughs> <laughs> yes it is kind of funny i feel like uh when i'm out in my chair and someone else is there it's like that person always feels like it seems like every time they either A, give me like advice on like a wheelchair (laughs) accessory or an accessible venue or transportation or something. And then um, lots of even fellow wheelchair people offering to pray for me. That's happened a lot, Um, (laughs) particularly in D.C. with kind of the older African-American community. Um, (laughs) That has happened a few times. (laughs) So anyway um because i mean there's a, so i have my perspective you know being kind of outside caregiver family member but what was what's been your experience i mean you were you experienced you were in it like this is your body gosh yeah i have many where to start <laughs> where to start well i was thinking it, it it took a while and i want to get your moment where you uh, kind of grappled with okay what does disabled mean what does that Hmm. What does that term mean for my life now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I just remember at one point, it was maybe a couple weeks. So I spent a month recovering from my surgery and 
one right. hospital, Johns Hopkins, and then got transferred to this rehabilitation uh, hospital. Mm-hmm. And when in the initial um, hospital, they didn't really talk about what it meant to be disabled. I don't even think they used the word disabled. I don't really remember that. It was just like, you're recovering from this intense surgery. That's all we're doing here. <laughs> yeah. I guess they, they talked a bit about you regaining the use of your legs and walking with a cane someday. Right. But there wasn't really a talking about what it means to be disabled. So when I went to the rehabilitation right. hospital, um, everyone gets a social worker there and my, or caseworker, mm-hmm. um, use the terms interchangeably, but my caseworker, social worker would come to us every week and kind of walk us through all of the equipment and the yeah, modifications and the social services available um, for me with my disability. And maybe two or three weeks in, she started the conversation with us about, all right, I'm going to tick through all the things that you're going to need to transition back home Hmm. with your disability. Right. And she had us take pictures of our house back in DC yeah, and bring them to her and say, you know, she was the steps, count the steps. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the, the doorway widths and how many floors it was and et cetera. Uh, the countertop height. Yeah, that's true. Lots yeah, of yep. different, you know, the shower, what kind of shower was it? Right. Um, all of these different things that she was going to go through with my occupational therapist to see what we needed to modify in order for me to live at home. Hmm. And I just remember that conversation just hit me like a ton of bricks of like, oh, this changes everything Hmm. my identity is radically shifting like i am Hmm. a disabled person um this and it i'll be totally honest that the idea of being a disabled person like kind of shook me to the core right of i was like many people like kind of took pride in my independence um I wanted to be the one doing things for other people. I don't want people doing stuff for me. Um, and just the, I think maybe the associations with that word of were yeah. weak to there be are. pitied, yeah. um, not a full life, sick. Yes. Um, yes. That's kind of what I had in my head. And so that identity suddenly being thrust upon me and knowing everything that I did to take care of myself was going to have to change. I was going to have to get multiple new devices, do renovations to our house in order to just do day-to-day activities. Yeah. Maybe we hit us recently that some people who you know here maybe aren't aware of your like earlier life, like junior high, high school, volleyball career, Hmm. incredibly competitive, right? Mm -hmm. You were very active. Uh, you You told me in college you would... Uh, well, you tried to, you were almost recruited by Baylor to play volleyball, mm-hmm. which is something. And then in, you went to the University of Florida, and then there uh, you would run to the sand volleyball <laughs> matches and run back. Yep. And then you ran a marathon, of course. You've been on some backpack trips together, fly fishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Climbed Half Dome. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, pre-DC Rachel, yeah, very what, fitness-minded. Yeah, yeah. You know, nutrition- um yes i was kind of the high achiever physically yeah Yeah. and that was that was a big part of my identity i think it was my physicality Mm -hmm. um and it just you know and when 
we got pregnant with a boy, I thought, well, I'm going to be the perfect boy mom. I'm going to be the one who's out there teaching him sports and running up the mountain with him. And that's not going to be what dad does alone. I'm going to do all those things too. And it made me excited to be a boy mom. Like, well, naturally that's a fit for me. Um, so there were just so many things that um, hit like a ton of bricks. And it was funny. We had yeah. a, a, psychi- a psychiatrist, psychologist in the hospital. Some. And she <laughs> was, um, I was kind of expressing this to her when Taylor and I were in there with her. And she was like, you know, you were having a newborn, right? Like uh, <laughs> your your life was going to change no matter what. So yeah, we kind of that did help. got hit with a double whammy of yes. parenthood, disability all happened at the same it's time. It's not like we were going to go on backpacking trips the first year <laughs> anyway or whatever. Yeah, I don't that, know what I was thinking. That was a comfort mm-hmm. knowing that and realizing that. I think, when did when did you first, <sighs> when did it hit you and what did you associate with it? I think it hit me hardest when you were going into surgery. Huh. Like that week of your surgery. For, you know, I wasn't sure if you were going to live, first of all. And then I wasn't sure, you know, what condition you'd come out in. Hmm. The, you know, words like quadriplegia, paraplegia were thrown around. And since then, we've come to learn like this technical quadriplegia, which you are. Right. If you right? have any impaired mobility. So even though it looks like my arms function normally, my right arm is actually not quite fully there. So I'm technically a quadriplegic. Right. Right. Which they didn't, you know, it's, it's the nuance that's tough. It's a, it was a lot to process. I think that's when it hit me. But then it was just kind of a slow, hmm. like going to McGee and... It's like, all right, we have to move. Because Hopkins was basically survival. Right. And then McGee was like, oh, we're going to go home in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like, yeah, I remember that exercise. Like I would go back and forth from D.C. to Philly. And I remember taking those photos, like 13 stairs in the front and 12 in the back, something like that. And it's kind of like you. We had I had to put on new glasses, I guess, hmm. for everything. It's like, okay, that door jam. Or the door threshold is too high, or the, okay, yeah, that back door is only twenty six inches wide. Mm-hmm. When before we would just kind of go zip, 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 you know, no, no right. thought given. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think it was. I don't know if there was. I think there was a moment somewhere in McGee. I can't remember the exact time. Maybe mm-hmm. it'll come back to me. But I do definitely remember the surgery. Like I, that I felt like okay, this life's gonna be radically different, hmm. one way or the other. Hmm. That surgery week early in June 19th, 2019. I'm going to take us for a radical turn that I didn't prepare you for here. Um, Actually, we didn't prepare for this podcast (laughs) at all. We're totally off the cuff tonight. Um, How were you mad at God for the unforeseen left Mm. turn that life took? Was I mad at God? I mean, I, I describe that that week of your surgery as it was silent. <laughs> like I don't know if I, yeah, like the the Monday night. So your surgery was on a Wednesday. The Monday night was the worst for <laughs> me. But and the other way to describe that is just like black, silent pit, kind of <laughs> no. Uh, I guess no, nothing coming from me or coming to me. <laughs> Um, I think I had been prepared 
hmm. in a way. How so? Last the two years prior, I had been kind of the question in my mind that I've been wrestling with was um, good, all powerful, loving God in the presence of extreme evil and suffering. Hmm. Not just I woke up with a headache, but uh, child can childhood cancers hmm. and genocide and the psalms had really popped out to me the ones that include cries about why are you ignoring me Hmm. god where are you Uh, tears my tears are my food Hmm. and i think jesus's experiences before i think i remember hitting that moment and just thinking uh, this really really sucks hmm. it's extremely painful it's extremely sad but it's uh, i want to say it's like normal is the wrong word but it's not maybe surprising or it's not i mean just, it was surprising to get there. yeah <laughs> yeah definitely uh it, it, there's like you're not the only one in this. Yeah, I'm not the only one in this situation mm-hmm. where God, it's not an indication of God's mm-hmm. attitude toward me, I guess. Hmm. It was, I think I took comfort in all those scriptures that, you know, Jesus feeling alone, hmm. you know, his, my God, why did you forsake me? Hmm. You know, crying out for relief in the garden before he was arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh Every biblical character, hmm. Elijah, uh, has this amazing mountaintop moment where fire consumes, <laughs> comes down out of heaven, and then he's threatened by this queen, and he's just, I'm done. And then he trudges for 40 days, and there's no record of God speaking to him then. And I hmm. think... In silence. Yeah, and like those, I, that trudging sort of motif had hopped out to me before all this happened. So I think it wasn't... I, I guess I felt like community in some sense hmm. with, I think, I think every biblical character has been through some sort of, you know, Moses in preparation for mm-hmm. his guidance. Uh, you know, you go on and on and on and on. Um, Even a friend pointed out to me recently that after Jesus died, was resurrected and then returned, ascended back to heaven. Mm-hmm the disciples didn't immediately receive the Holy Spirit. So they didn't, Hmm. you know, receive the power of God immediately. There was a waiting period. Yeah. um, Before they received the power of God. Yeah. I think that, that those types of moments are so easy to just miss. Right. Right. In scripture and the narrative to really, or the man who goes to find Jesus to heal his daughter. And it's, Mm. I think a day and a half travel each way for him. Mm. And no, no way to know, you know, on the way there is his daughter. Like I could imagine like leaving you when you were sick. That was the mm-hmm. last thing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It's like for someone to do that in that time, especially like, okay, day and a half out. They didn't have cell phones. Did Jesus, did it work when Jesus said so? And then he's walking back and he finds out that his daughter was healed at the same time. But like, well, let's not, let's not blip over day and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the road or whatever the time frame is. Yeah, like the disciples waiting for. So I think all that was just in my mind. Hmm. Uh, wow. So I don't remember. I don't remember feeling mad at 
God, I remember feeling like he wasn't answering. Hmm. Yeah. I remember feeling like um, it'd be really great to have, <laughs> like, you know, the, you know, you get up and walk or for uh, any other kind of number of, you know, what miracles we would design. But we had so many other, like, people coming around to help us and there was and a hand of God there. I mean, so today, I don't know if we, we haven't even said this yet, that today I am walking with a cane. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't pop right up out of bed, but it's been a slow miracle. And, you know, I, I do want to acknowledge that not everyone even gets the miracle that yes. I've gotten right. This, yes. um, I wasn't guaranteed this. And I think that has been a hard part of the journey is um, not knowing how the story ends mm-hmm. with, you know, what level of disability or whatnot. Um, and I've also just come to learn, I'm kind of changing the subject on us that yes, I'm really grateful that I'm up and walking with a cane mm. when I can and, you know, crutches and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still spend a good amount of my day in the wheelchair cause I'm uh, chasing a toddler around, but I've come to the point, I work really hard. I want to walk again. I, uh, work my butt off in physical therapy to get there. But if I didn't, life in a wheelchair is not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. just, I, I want to acknowledge things, that. Yeah. yeah. That it's not a lesser life. It's just no. different. And yep. I've heard some people say that like, you know what? It's not the wheelchair that's hard. It's that the world around the wheelchair is not made for the wheelchair. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and so, yeah. you know, like being in a wheelchair is actually not bad, but yep. it's when you run into steps or the elevators broken or the doorways aren't wide enough or whatever it is that's mm-hmm. not accessible. That's what makes a wheelchair difficult. Yep. Um, and you can think of it like the difference, you know, there's the lens, right? Like we, we, you and I look at the world, it's like, okay, to get from A to B, what are the, like the obstacles for a wheelchair or crutches or whatever the conditions are. And just the, uh, I remember we went to that restaurant Anju mm-hmm. in DC and how welcoming they were. Like Ninja was there with a ramp and, uh, it rolled out the red carpet essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's reactions like that and experiences like that. They're like uplifting, but then there's other ones that can be frustrating like i know if we've been to a restaurant or out to a place where you like it there aren't there isn't a ramp at all i guess we called some hotels recently and they said we don't even have an elevator right right well okay (laughs) (laughs) right yeah no elevator well guess we can't stay there yeah um yeah or even i think you know perceptions again i think it's not even mean-spirited it's that people don't understand and um just these misperceptions. I've told the story on Instagram that I frequently go out with Hudson. I have him on my lap and we roll around the neighborhood and this total stranger didn't ever, I've never met her. She came up and started asking me questions that were basically getting at like, this couldn't be your biological child was asking me, Mm. did you carry him? As in like, you know, carry him pregnancy wise and then did well is is the father nearby (laughs) and all these things that were like very probing and like it caught me so off guard i had no idea what to say but just this like she couldn't fathom that a person in a wheelchair could 
carry a child, which right. by the way, people with quadriplegia, yes. I, I give birth to children all the time. Yep. Um, Still have sex, get pregnant. Yep. All those things. We heard one story of uh, a patient in the hospital who what, was paralyzed <laughs> and thought that meant she couldn't have babies anymore and so slept with her boyfriend or whatever and got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> and we've, yeah, we've, what you've known or know of uh, total quadriplegic mothers who have multiple children? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, There's this great film coming out, Danny's Twins, that I follow on Instagram um, that we'll link in the show notes. And she's quadriplegic and she had twins. Um, so she posts great pictures and stories about um, her experience there. And uh, I think it's just great bringing to light more that so many things um, life life is still so good in so many ways. Mm. And that's the same, I think, with intellectual disabilities. Um, and I think just the realization that um, all of us will experience disability yeah. at some point in your gonna life. I was just going to say that, yeah. You know, whether it's just breaking a leg or um, into when you become elderly. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a good likelihood that in your lifetime you are going to be disabled at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I just encourage everyone to uh, think about it. Think about um, what it means to be disabled and rethink that it, it doesn't have this negative association like the world is ending. Right. And in fact, you know, I, I have come to the conclusion that. Limitation is actually a gift in many ways. Hmm. Um, I think before this, I kind of lived my life thinking I had no limits. And then maybe it's a very like American cultural thing. (laughs) Um, And that would lead to burnout, stress, um, feelings of always wanting more, more, more. Because, well, what if Hmm. I haven't done enough or experienced enough? And now I just... It's a fact of life. I've internalized and know that I have limits when in reality, everyone has limits. Yeah, yeah. Mine just are more, I've uh, had to face them. Um, And that gives me freedom to know, actually, I only have this many hours of energy in a day. So I have to say no to some things. I have to make decisions. Um, And I think that that makes the time that I do use well, uh, more full, not always kind of feeling like I'm living limitless. Hmm. It's a good word. I mean, I've, I've internalized that same lesson from you and our experience mm-hmm. that, yeah, we're, we will all be disabled at some point. And it's not this foreign thing that happens to other people. It's not a half life. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a full life that looks a little different than, you know, like whatever the normal, <laughs> normal life means. And, you know, people talk about how oh, there's no such thing. And, uh, but I think, you know, the, our experience really checked that reality. It's one thing to I guess, say that, you know, in like one conversation once a year or something, but then mm-hmm. to really, I guess, yeah, bump up against those limits. That's the best way to, just, that's a good way to describe it mm-hmm. is, uh, it, it made, made everything just, yeah, hit closer to home and, uh, like we were part of a pretty cool community of people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, 
we've gone a lot longer on this. Uh, just, I think, last word, you know, not everyone with a disability wants you to come up and ask them questions about it <laughs> or ask them how they mm. got disabled. But, um, you know, we've made ourselves a public resource with this podcast. So if you have yeah. any questions, feel free to ask us. Yep. We're glad to answer them. Yep. Well, should we switch to stinkers and thinkers? Yes. Taylor, what is your, what do we do first? Stinker? I think so. What's your stinker this week? It is related to an article a friend of ours wrote, Liz White, who works at the Center for Public Integrity. She's a journalist, an excellent journalist. So she wrote a piece, uh, a very good piece about the vast sums of money made by the anti-vaxxer community, uh, particularly the most prominent anti-vaxxers, you know, uh, $5 million, maybe in the tens, uh, selling merchandise, ads, lessons, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in her reporting, she reached out to people who knew some of these anti-vaxxers and those people told others. People making money, like have public websites where right. they sell videos. Right. Not just an average Joe anti-vaxxer. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like prominent. Like, people who know. sell courses and yeah, videos. Yeah, like million followers and, type. And millions people. of dollars, apparently. Yep. <laughs> so you reached out to people who knew them and just said, hey, would you be willing to talk about these folks? And, you know, are they really true believers here? Just tell me more. I want to learn more. It's a normal journalistic yeah. thing. And what happened was people uh, sent her despicable messages. Uh, one person posted her address on InfoWars in the comments section and uh, her cell phone number, email address, and she was getting death threats, threats of violence against her and her family. And these are friends of ours. They were talking little babies. Yeah, uh, four and four years old and less than one year old. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's pregnant, yeah. Yeah, just beautiful family. We've known them for years. Uh, there was... Amazing, <laughs> yeah. The InfoWars article called her yeah, using Stalinist techniques, and I couldn't think of anyone less like Stalin than Liz White. So... Mm-hmm. My stinker is absolutely Infowars and these people who, you know, if you're really about ideas and the truth, then you don't respond that way, I don't think. No. Uh, you would respond with, you know, a dialogue and presenting your evidence and not threatening death against a young family. Yeah. So that's an absolute stinker. Yeah, the internet could be a dark place and this, like threatening journalists and public figures um it's just it needs to stop Mm -hmm. what's your stinker my stinker is a netflix special that we watched this week um i'm probably not a cool millennial for saying this but it's uh comedian bo burnham's inside and not that i didn't find some of it entertaining but i think overall he has a very like pessimistic nihilistic Mm. view Mm. on what's happening in the world and just that the past year was just he doesn't I guess he doesn't say this but he insinuates that he talks about like committing suicide it's so terrible that and I just was thinking yeah you know the last year with COVID was rough and Mm -hmm. lots of not good things and you know people died and it wasn't great and people lost their jobs and were stuck inside and lonely. But 
my goodness, there have been <laughs> worse times in history. I mean, yes. there were times where yes. it was normal for women to die in childbirth all the time. There were times when the Holocaust happened. Yes. <laughs> there were there were just so many worse times in human history than this last year, which it's still it wasn't great, but mm-hmm. this pessimistic view I think mm-hmm. was just indicative of um the kind of I don't know whether it's I don't know to, whether it's to blame news media and social media for amplifying these negative stories that have just made people feel like it's just race issues are the worst they ever were. Health is the worst it ever was. Poverty is and that all those things like there have been much worse yeah. times in history. Yes. Not to say we shouldn't care about injustice and we shouldn't care about sickness and like we should always care about the evils yes. in the world. But Ah, there's a lot to be optimistic about and it was just way too the world is burning yeah taste. like 50 percent of children died before they reached i think age of four for almost all of human history until <laughs> right. about 40 years ago 50 years ago right. so it's just it's and barack obama had a great answer to that i think he had his long interview with atlantic uh the atlantic and the editor's like how do you just stay positive he's like well things have actually you know, gotten a lot better throughout history. And he's like, I was reading about Genghis Khan and like when he would come up to a city, he'd say like, do you want us to like, do you want to surrender and we just enslave you? Or do you want us to conquer you where we like skin you and all your loved ones alive? Like pick one. Gosh. Uh, yeah. Times were very brutal. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. Barack Obama had a great answer to that. And I think read some history. Yeah. <laughs> read some history, Bo Burnham. <laughs> Good thing our podcast is so little, he'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Taylor, what is your thinker? Oh, man. I. There's a lot of good stuff that we consumed. Um, Okay, do you want me to go first? Sure. My thinker, oh my gosh, we loved it. We couldn't stop watching it. We couldn't wait to keep watching it, was the HBO show Mayor of Easttown. And, you know, maybe it's not that original. It's like a crime series, whatever. Um, And I just really love Kate Winslet and anything she's in. But it was like edge of your seat, plot twist, and and just entertaining um, for that reason of like, I got to come back and see what the newest hunches. It was fun. You and I would have theories about who did it. Yes. And then we were inspired to watch it because of that SNL skit, Murder Dirter. <laughs> yes. So we kind of like, we probably laughed more than we should have in the first couple episodes. <laughs> so if you haven't watched the SNL skit, Murder Dirter, definitely watch it. <laughs> I think... Uh, my recommendation, my thinker is, uh, station 11, that book I read recently, finished it in like four days, five days. Emily St. John Mandel. The pandemic one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It came out in 2019. It's about a flu that Mm -hmm. wipes out as like a 99% mortality rate. See, that would be reason to be pessimistic. Yes. But (laughs) she, the author does a great job. I think of just the character the characters are very intricate it's at the end it was like oh do you want to read some of the books and Stephen King's The Stand was on that list which oof. or Cormac McCarthy's The Road both of which I've read and this was very different from those um, interesting characters good pacing and then I think this attitude of gratitude about you know just flight smartphones you know when all when 
civilization crumbles and those things don't work anymore just you know children growing up you know 25 years after the plague wiped out everyone looking at an airplane and like i can't believe that flew and you know, um. just sort of that uh that sort of writing it's not it's a maybe it's a little uh heavy-handed but uh it was a good book i and hmm. really enjoyed it station yeah. 11 nice well this was we're the barclays thanks for listening to our story this week uh let us know what you think share it with a friend give us a nice review thanks for listening <laughs>